0: This week on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast, Dolph Lundgren. So when you were my age, what were you lifting?
1: A lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: The action movie icon tells how the role of Ivan Drago in Rocky IV changed his life.
1: It took me three or four years to get my bearings back.
0: And details his up and down relationship with Sylvester Stallone.
1: I called my wife at the time and I basically just told her, you know, if he says one more word, I'm going to knock him out and f- this movie, I'm out of here.
0: He reflects on the abuse he faced from his father growing up in Sweden.
1: When somebody you love hits hurts you, it does a number on you as a kid.
0: Plus, we meet up with his fellow action comrade, Arnold Schwarzenegger, to look back on the good old days.
2: I don't think we should give him any more information. <laughs> you know, we gave him 5% of what we know and we that he now can conquer the world.
0: But for the first time ever, Lundgren is revealing the emotional journey he's faced since being diagnosed with kidney cancer in 2015. His story's one of ups and downs and we get started at the beginning. I know it's been a, a tough few years. Uh, you, you have not talked about it yet and uh, i'm really grateful for the opportunity <laughs> that uh, you're willing to t- take us through uh, you know some of this today
1: they found a uh, tumor or they didn't know what it was just a tumor in my kidney and they took it out uh, here in la in 2015 but then they did a biopsy and it was cancerous and then i did scans every six months then you do it every year and it was fine you know for five years in 2020 I was back in Sweden and uh, uh, had some kind of acid reflux. or so I didn't know what it was, so I did a, an MRI. I did one. And um, they found uh, that there were a few more tumors around that area. So you have the surgery. You
0: wake up. You, you're told they actually removed six tumors. Yeah. Uh, and what happens from there?
1: There's a picture that I was going to direct and star in that was starting in the fall. The doctor called me when I was in Alabama ready to shoot and he said they found one more tumor in the liver. So I was like, oh okay. At that point, it started to hit me that this is kind of something serious. And they did a scan to um, you know, prepare for surgery and the surgeon called me um, and said, no, uh, it's grown now, it's too big, we can't take it out. It's like the size of a, like a small lemon. So now, if they can't take it out, that means you have to do systemic therapy. But then I started getting these side effects where I got uh, diarrhea and uh, st- I lost a lot of weight. And that wasn't very nice for myself or for, you know, my poor fiance to suffer through that.
3: His mouth got really sore.
0: That's Doll's fiance, Emma Krokdahl
3: his hands got sore feet, and he couldn't eat anything warm, anything cold, anything like spicy. So that was a struggle to get food down, so he kept losing weight.
1: The problem was the, the doctor over there wasn't really sharing information with us, so we didn't really know. Didn't know what was going on. And
0: the, these are the doctors at Cedars?
1: These are doctors at Cedars, yeah. I had signed um, an Expendables 4, And Aquaman, a sequel to Aquaman, and both pictures shooting in London in the fall of 2021. When I got to London, they they had a, a really good guy there who kind of was put in charge of my care. And I didn't hear from the people at Cedars for six months. They had never called me or anything. I think now, thinking back, they probably thought, oh, I'm a lost case which I'd realized that with a guy in London.
3: We realized it was a lot worse than we thought. He kind of started talking about all these different tumors, like in the lung, in the stomach, in the spine, outside the kidneys.
0: Do do you remember specifically what he said?
1: He started saying things like you should probably take, you know, take a break and spend more time with your family and so forth. So I kind of asked him, you know, how long do you think I've got left? And he said, you know, I think he said two or three years, but I could tell in his voice that he probably thought it was less. Did you think it was it? They thought it was it for sure. Yeah. So. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, it was. It's. Um, it's. You know. I mean, you kind of look at your life and going. Have had a great life? Yeah, I've had a freaking great life. I've led like five lifetimes in one already, but everything I've done and, you know, and so it wasn't like I was bitter about it. It was just like, you know, feel sorry for your, for, your, for my kids and my fiance and people around you, you know what I mean? Because I'm still a fairly young guy and fairly, you know, active and so forth.
0: Dolph's daughter, Ida Lundgren,
4: it obviously hit me when I had a deep conversation with my dad about what would happen if he, you know, passed away and stuff. That was a horrible conversation. It's cause I was like, yeah, at a tough time, yeah.
1: to grab a?
4: Sorry. Oh, it's fine. I think it's just sometimes I keep so much in and I try to be, like, tough a lot. Yeah. Um, I don't think I've even spoken that much about it. Like what would have happened and stuff like that, because also I have to be strong for my sister.
0: And that's a heavy burden to carry.
4: I mean, I've always known that family is the most important thing, to be honest. You need to understand that life can change in a second and you need to be on board and you need to be strong.
1: So I, in the midst of my, uh, you know, shooting these two movies and being kind of depressed, I decided, well, f- screw it, I might as well get a second opinion. So I, I, we get there and I see this doctor. We um, meet this doctor, Drakaki.
5: This Legend walks in and he's so sick looking and completely absent from the whole visit.
0: That's Dolce oncologist, Dr. Drukaki.
5: He's just looking the floor and he was told that he has a few months to leave. That's how we get challenged to see can we find a different avenue to, to care for these patients. And so then I had my colleagues uh, to offer another biopsy and talk to pathology and ask them to reevaluate the tumor. He was lucky because we did find a mutation that is actually common in lung cancer, and I was able to get off-label use for uh, his kidney cancer, treating as if it was lung.
3: She was like, this is really good news. There's so many medications that targets this mutation. We're going to start with this one that seems to be the most effective. I remember we were driving home and he was like, we couldn't speak, like, both of us were like, you know, it's like a movie.
1: If I'd gone on the other treatment, I had about three to four months left. I couldn't believe that, that it would be that radical of a difference, that within three months, it was, you know, things
0: were shrinking by 20, 30%. How well do you recall uh, sharing with your family when you had the positive news?
1: Yeah, I remember sharing
2: it with them.
1: Yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was emotional because, you know, uh Even I, I remember telling um, even my good some of my good friends. Nobody wants to think the worst, but I think they did. They did think, you know, that it was over. W- what's happened since then? So 2022 was basically watching these medications do their thing, and uh, finally things had shrunk into about 90 percent. Now I'm in the process of taking out the the remaining scar tissue of these tumors.
5: I used to say. His cancer is melting away. There are certain parts of his body that the cancer is responding really well. There are some lesions that we cannot see them anymore. So that is above expectations.
1: What's the prognosis now? The prognosis is that um, hopefully when they take these out, there's no cancer activity and um, the medication that I'm taking is going to suppress everything else.
5: I hope it's years. I don't think it's months. My hope and goal is to try to keep them on these medications as long as possible. And then as the future and the sinus is changing, just keep getting biopsies as things change within his body to try to identify newer targets for treatment.
0: Going through all of this has impacted you now,
1: how? Well, I, th- I think, you know, you appreciate life a lot more. You appreciate every day. Every day I can be with people I love. And, um, you know, you just appreciate, uh, you know, having a, being lucky enough to be alive And, and appreciate every moment there is. This is just the first time I've spoken about it. So if it can save one person's life, who was in my situation and is worth it, for sure. As you're thinking about this, what uh, makes you emotional? That I I found these wonderful people that, I, that could help me, you know, and, and that I, I think maybe all the work I did. Somehow as an actor, you know, you, you put, you try to put positive emotion and positive energy into the world, you know, and, I've always tried to be nice to everybody I meet, all fans, anybody. And I maybe it came back to me somehow now when I needed it, you know, the most. I think when you put love out there, you get it back, you know.
0: Well, speaking of love, uh, you mentioned your fiance. How did you guys hit it off?
1: We met in uh, here in West Hollywood um, uh, at Equinox. I was looking for the boxing room, and I just grabbed somebody who was going up the stairs, and, and uh, hey, excuse me, where's the, and she looked like a trainer, where's the boxing room? And she turned around and it was like, oh, shit. you know, there's like one of those flashes <laughs> when you go, uh-oh. And she looked at me for a second, I could kind of tell that there was kind of, You're chill to some extent, and we became friends first. And it was nothing romantic for a while. We just trained together. I didn't even know she was from Norway. I, I, she, you know, she sounds very American. Uh, She did have those long legs, though, it didn't. Something Scandinavian going on.
0: Okay, so I have to ask this because it was a funny story. Mm -hmm. This, the the, uh, Snapchat and your parents.
3: My mom, my stalker. The first time I spent at his house, Obviously, I wasn't going to tell my mom about it. I wasn't planning on it becoming anything serious at all. So, my mom, she stalks me. I should have known. but
0: I mean, it's your mom. She wants yeah, what's best for she you. She
3: checks the Snapchat map, and she found that I was not home. And then she sent me a screenshot of me on the map, and she Googled the address, and she found out it was Dolph's address. So, <laughs> so that was a bit awkward. But they're cool about it. They got to know each other really well.
0: And the rest is history.
3: Yeah.
1: I didn't know why she liked me at all, but I suppose she saw something there, and she didn't know about my acting career. She didn't know anything about me.
0: I'd have to imagine these past couple years together has only kind (laughs) of strengthened the the relationship.
1: Yeah, I felt sorry for her because I didn't want her. She's quite a bit younger than me and having to deal with all this all of these doctor's appointments and and all this. But she's been very good about it and super supportive and uh, I think has brought us together. She was like an angel that was sent down to help me. But by the way, on
0: the younger than you front, because I was grilling her about this yeah. the other day on the phone, what what's that dynamic like? <sighs> um, your, your daughter, Ida, was telling me she's like, um, the first time uh the, the, the dad uh, t- told me her age she said uh, she was 28
1: You I? <laughs> know I misspoke I guess I misspoke um look um the age difference yeah it's quite um it's it's quite um severe but uh I think you know I'm lucky in one way cuz I'm in show business I deal with young people all the time I work out I I don't feel that old. How did you find out about Emma?
4: Emma, I found out in New York.
0: Dolph's daughter, Ida Lundgren. I heard you guys did some cyber stalking.
4: Yeah, my sister did some stalking. (laughs) I know that my dad can't really be single. He would like call me less, and like he would call me on weekends and be a bit like, yeah, call you back, call you back, like a bit like funny. So me and my sister were like, oh, I bet he's seeing someone, I bet he's seeing someone, ha ha ha. And he came to New York and we were at lunch and I just saw his phone. When he went to the bathroom, his phone was ringing and it was Emma. So then I knew immediately, okay, Emma is her name. <laughs> Obviously the age thing was a bit weird, especially when we started hanging out in the beginning. And then after that, you know, everything was chilled.
1: I just feel like Emma is very mature for her age, for sure. I mean, she's had an interesting life. She came over here from a small town in Norway. She, she was married here and she, went through, like, a difficult divorce and, you know, went through a lot of stuff that, you know, most young people her age don't have to deal with. So she's quite mature, and I think I'm, at the same time, I think quite youthful. But, you know, I've been with people that are twice her age, you know, they're less mature than she is. And, you know, sometimes I think about that, that... uh, how old was Einstein when he wrote The Theory of Relativity? He was in his early 20s, you know. They don't have as much life experience, but it doesn't mean you can't relate to them. How do you propose?
3: Um, we were in Stockholm, and he had rented this suite with a balcony, and there was, like, a woman playing violin in there, and um, champagne on the outside, and and he got really nervous, but it was very sweet.
1: She's been everything. She's been supportive. You know, we've been lovers, but we've been partners. She's turned out to be a very clever person in in filmmaking. I produce and direct movies, and she's produced uh, uh, one film with me now, and we're doing the second. And, you know, believe me, I've felt very depressed a lot of times, and, uh, you know, I've been fighting that, you know. uh, what you know? What am I doing? You know? How is it going to end up? How? What? You know? Is it worth it? But you know, she makes it worth it.
0: G- growing up, I understand you could not play sports.
1: No. Well,
0: how, how does that
1: work? <laughs> I couldn't play sports because the summer in Sweden is very short, and the pollen goes from like nothing to maximum high amount very quickly in May, say April or May. And I would get really sick in the summer, and I couldn't really be outside much. And you were always picked last. Yeah, I picked last on the team, and so forth. Between that and my dad beating me up, I, I had a lot of, uh, you know, uh, insecurity and uh, and bullying from classmates. Bu- bullying from classmates to some degree. My way to um, to kind of feel special was that I was very good in school. So that's how I kind of got back at them by answering all the questions correctly.
0: You mentioned your dad and yeah. the abuse. Uh, he had a few other siblings, obviously.
1: Why was it that
0: he would only touch you and your mom? Um,
1: yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I think I may have reminded him of himself. Maybe it was the fact that I was the first son and maybe my he got jealous of of me because maybe my mom gave me more attention than he gave to him, I'm not sure. I mean, he had a lot of issues. What would he do and what was the worst? Well, he would sort of, just when he had a bad day at work or if I'd done something wrong, as kids do, then he would just beat me up or, you know. I think the worst time was maybe when I was about eight or nine or 10. He wouldn't like punch me and break my nose or anything like that, he would kind of just beat me up He'd kick me in the body, or tear my hair off. So sometimes he would, I would have like a kind of a thin spot of hair, like a bald spot almost.
0: Describe the embarrassment of going to school in those
1: situations. I think it was embarrassing for me, and I. This is in a day where you, there was nowhere to call, there was no hotline, there was no, there was no um, psychological counseling, nothing like that. You know, basically the man. This is in the 60s. The man was the head of the household, and he was in charge, and my dad, was a, he had a high position in the government. I couldn't say anything, but I, I think mostly for me, it was more, um, you know, I looked up to him a lot, as, as a little boy do, and when somebody you love hits you, hurts you, you know, you, you, it does a number on you as a kid. I think you, you end up blaming yourself a lot. Somewhere in there I think it did somehow blame myself. I think it gave me a real ambition to to succeed and to prove to prove to the world that I wasn't a, a loser the fact that I became a fighter and I became very good at school and later tried to excel at things he he helped me in that respect. Maybe without him I wouldn't have done that. like my siblings here in Sweden they live nice lives, but they don't have that urge to to prove anything to the world. So he, so that was a positive thing to some degree. What would he do to your mom? Beat her and, and torture her and throw her out of the house and she'd have to sleep like in, you know, outside. And she'd still have to cook food for everybody. And and um, yeah, it was, it was tough. And, and painful for you that you couldn't protect C- couldn't her. Couldn't
0: protect her, yeah, I know. You had some underlying anger from what I understand towards your mom for yeah, that's that's Why?
1: Well, you know, if you're a young boy and and if, you're, if your father beats you, uh, I mean, and a, lot, a lot of women would take the kid and say, f*** you, I'm out of here, and, you know, leave. But my mom didn't do that. She was, you know, an abused woman. So I think I had something against her, but she was a wonderful person and very... You're very giving and very loving. there was
0: a period where you did want to hurt your dad badly, though,
1: yeah, I mean, obviously, I had dreams about it when I got strong enough, and when I was training martial arts and and I suppose some of the reason behind me doing all the training was maybe to get back at him or stand up to him. but you know life was strange by the time you're eighteen, and you shoot up and suddenly you're a six foot three. And you're still weighing two hundred pounds, and then your dad in the meantime has gotten kind of weak, and now he got sick too, and I couldn't just show up and, and martial arts teaches you to respect and it teaches you not to to misuse it. So I couldn't just like you know, take a train back home just to beat him up. It wasn't my I, I wasn't it wasn't my personality. Why did you never talk to him about it later in life? <sighs> yeah, but you know, by the time I got old enough to and mature enough to speak to him about it. He was kind of, he, he had he had mental issues and he was kind of like, he wasn't living in reality. He was living in a parallel universe where he suspected people of being after him and he saw like secret police everywhere and, and he was kind of sick. And I realized there was no way I could bring it up to him. He had no recollection of that at all. He grew up in the during the Depression in Sweden, in the 30s, when people starved to death in, in a small town. And I think my, his, my grandfather, his dad, used to be a hard drinker, and he was very violent too. And um, I'm sure my dad, he was probably a sensitive young boy and somebody really abused him. So I, I forgave him because I, I knew that he, you know, he didn't want to be that way. What was
0: involved with getting to the place where you forgave him?
1: Um, I think when I really had to do therapy to really forgive him, perhaps he was forced to do something when he was a kid. He he may have had other adventures, you know, plans or dreams that he never he never um, acted on. But I did. I I switched. He probably. Uh, Admire that in me to some degree—that I had the guts to do that, to, to follow my instinct, my heart, instead of what he—he he, he did, what he was told by his parents, you know. What, what thinking
0: about that uh, still makes you emotional?
1: Well, because I wish I would have, you know, I wish he wouldn't have had that illness that I could have connected with the nice part of him. He was a very smart man and charming, and and. I just feel sorry for him. I wish I would have been there to help him.
0: There's a seems to be very clear alignment with when therapy started and when
1: you started becoming
0: more open in
1: uh, media conversations. Yeah, that's true. I started therapy in 20, uh, 2012 and it really started working like 2014 in there somewhere. And yeah, and I mean, all these things I wanted to do, for instance, professionally that I wanted to do before, but it wouldn't work out uh, started happening, you know, better film roles and so forth.
4: Um, he thought it was for and he would, you know, like, he said that (laughs) on, like, I think he said that on, like, a TED talk or something.
0: That's Dolph's daughter, Ida Lundgren. But
4: yeah, I think everyone should just be open about trying to heal themselves. Everyone's had a lot of tough things happen to them in their lives, so why not?
1: I was very self-destructive when I was younger. I... uh, That means what? Well, it's something called escape behavior. Like, for instance, if you're a young kid in Sweden and your dad can come into your room and beat you up anytime he wants to and you can't do anything about it, you can't run away, you can't fight back, and you it's called freeze, you freeze. Your whole the emotions get locked inside you and you try to escape it by alcohol is a good way. I mean, organized violence is good too, like boxing, martial arts, and that's why I became a fighter and that's why I try to get it out through acting as well. And also drinking too much and kind of abusing my own body. And a lot of that disappeared after I did therapy. The tools that
0: therapy taught you
1: would be what? To be honest with yourself. And to uh, not to be afraid of, of uh, examining, you know, the dark, the dark areas and, and the pain inside. Because... Um, there's a lot of strength in that. Everybody has problems. Everybody has has a tough childhood in their own way, you know. And yeah, I just think uh, if you don't if you don't work on yourself, then it's gonna. The older you get, the more it it rules your life, and the more you become a, a slave to it. It takes over, and you you end up doing things you don't really want to do, but you have no choice. What do you think's been your
0: single lowest point and how you got through it
1: the single lowest point was probably when i was married i lived in spain uh, my wife didn't want to move back to la i would retired 30 years too early i retired when i was like 35 moved to spain um, and uh financially i wasn't doing well i, I wasn't getting the movies anymore because i was too far away and i had to get divorced and i didn't and, and i hadn't dealt with the ptsd I hadn't dealt with my my trauma and i was just basically um yeah i was kind of suicidal and self-destructive and drinking and part and, and you know uh, having affairs and just uh, being a really bad husband and a really bad dad, you know? I mean, that was a low point in my life. I I, I didn't have the tools to deal with it. I was just almost hoping that I wasn't gonna wake up one day after one of these drinking bouts where I would just disappear for a couple of days from my home and my kids didn't know where I was and friends were looking for me and, yeah. Did, Did you ever try taking your own life? Not, not in the way, you know, like I want to do it because I would have probably succeeded, but uh, because I'm kind of a, you know, result oriented guy, you know, but uh, no, I think I, I, I tried to sort of, I, I was very close, I think, by just, you know, drinking and not taking care of myself, sort of. A just. How, how bad did stress. that get? <sighs> well, you got bad we just end up with some woman who I never met or can't remember anything about, you know, and just just be gone with her for like maybe a day or two, just drop my kids up to school and then just go on a bender for a couple of days to a point where some of my friends would find me finally and pull me out of bed and I would stay with their at their house for until I was, you know, sober and well enough to go home to my kids. You know, after I did therapy, I went back and I, I apologized to my kids and my ex-wife, too. What that. did you say? I just said, I'm really sorry for what I did and I, I hope you can forgive me, you know. And uh, they started crying immediately. So. Did they? Yeah. So, so I knew that it was, it was that it was good that I did it, because they realized that their their strong dad can also make mistakes. But the main thing is that you have to, you have to owe up to it. Um, My wife started crying before even. I I didn't even have to say half the sentence.
4: He said sorry to my mom. He said sorry to us. Um,
1: Tough,
0: tough conversation.
4: I think more for my mom and my dad, it was great for them, I think. Especially for my mom that he, you know, said sorry about a few things that he did that hurt her. Which I also looked up to, you know, as a daughter. Like, because obviously I was a bit angry at him at that age. It's important to see a guy being, respecting a woman and saying sorry and, you know, realizing that he's done wrong in some things, you know, that's very big.
1: How has it been ever since? Well, it's been, my kids... They're very good. They, they, they have been in therapy on and off when they have a problem, and they they think it's completely normal, yeah. and I think it's great, you know. And I've been, I've had some issues with one, especially with my own younger daughter, and we've been in therapy together. I hear she's more like you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've been in therapy together, and uh, Greta, and it's Greta, and it's perfect, and and I love that the fact that they think it's perfectly okay. The trauma and all of those things that I've that fueled me, but I—they were also like a, It was like a, a devil inside that I couldn't—I didn't know how to deal with it, you know. And these things can end badly for a lot of people. I mean, you know, people self-destruct in this business, and it wouldn't—I wouldn't, I wouldn't have been the first one. And I was very close. I I want to shift gears
0: completely because you have some amazing stories. Grace Jones uh, was, I believe, your first real girlfriend. Yes. Uh, But I I want to uh, take you back to the moment where you walk into the theater with her for the Rocky premiere. And then what happened on the way out?
1: (laughs) Yeah, uh, I'd been with Grace for about... Two, three years. Who was as big as it gets? Grace Grace was huge. She was in a Bond movie. She was in a Conan movie. It's how I met Arnold. And, uh, you know, I was with her in New York, and I started studying acting with her acting coach. And then I went out for a boxing movie, turned out to be Rocky IV, and I got the role. And um, suddenly this kind of nerdy chemical engineering student who she was dating, who was also a fighter, ends up, you know, being on his way to movie stardom, but I didn't know that. And I went to the premiere of um, Rocky IV in Westwood, and there was a big premiere with elephants and marching bands, what have you. And there was a limo, and and coming out of the limo was Grace and one of her great big hats and looking fabulous. And people were trying to get me out of the way to take pictures of her, you know, like who is this guy getting out of the way? I hadn't seen the movie, you know. I just did some ADR when you do dialogue replacement, and I'd seen some. Black and white print, bad print. I thought it looked like shit. I was like, all this work for, for this? It's like crap. And then um, the, the lights went down and these two boxing gloves came up, you know, Russian, Soviet, and American, <laughs> collided. And I remember sitting there like, I was frozen in 90 minutes, whatever long the movie is, and the lights came up and people applauding and Sly was sitting there next to Stallone somewhere but I realized everybody was looking at me somehow and uh, when I came out people are taking pictures of me and they were more interested in me than Grace because you know she was a big star but she was kind of old news it's always the new star that people are interested in and uh, it took me three or four years I think to get to get my bearings back. It was the craziest time in my life. It was wonderful, but crazy. Explain what she
0: was doing with your clothes uh, when she once missed a recording session at the studio.
1: Well, she was a temperamental girlfriend, and uh, and she had a lot of late night parties, and I had to get up and train with Stallone or, and, uh, every morning at seven o'clock, uh, twice a day for six months. And I started looking a bit tired. And he was like, oh, you can stay at my place. He moved his sister out of the guest house, and I was staying up at his house, full of bodyguards and whatever it was. And then Grace got upset. So uh, one day the maid calls me and says, oh, sir, you have to come back. I'm like, why? Oh, ma'am is burning all your clothes. <laughs> well, it turned out I had all these, you know, fashion clothes from New York. And Johnny Versace made me like a special leather jacket when he was first came to America and all of that. And it was all burnt. It was all in the fireplace, like ashes. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, another time after you guys broke up, uh, she showed up looking for you carrying a gun. Yeah, uh, there were a few things like that. She, uh, you know, what happened was once the producers of a film she was in, they um, called me and said, uh, can you please, uh, help us get Grace to the set because the whole, everybody's standing by and she's five hours late or eight hours late, but she's armed. She's got a gun and she doesn't want to come out. So I had to go up and like take the gun out, take the clip out and she went back to work. You helped her
0: through some low points, she
1: said. Yeah, I helped her through, yeah, she, you know, she was going through a real tough time, but you know, a little bit of drug abuse and stuff like that, and I helped her a little bit there. And she was fun, you know. She'd, I, I was I had a house up in um, Mount Olympus, and I remember once I was there with some. This is I was single after breaking up with her, and you, you know, I was kind of a young hot movie star, and I had a few, you know, girlfriends here and there, and. and um, you I said you had a w- few girlfriends. W- I, from
0: what I understand, you you said you had four and five ways. With well,
1: yeah, that was with her. But <laughs> no, but I had somebody up there, and then and, and I was in bed with somebody, and um, and uh, there's uh, this honking and screaming outside, and I was like, "What the hell?" And uh, intercom, and his grace, Dolph, darling, I'm here. It's like, well, I'm a little busy now. It's okay. I don't mind. Can I come up? It's like, no, you can't. Well, okay. Then I'm gonna yell and scream till the cops show up out here. Okay. And she had to come. Well, she wanted to come and join us, but I said no. Forget it. But you know, I got I got caught up in it a little bit, but never really that bad because of I always had to train for my movies and stuff like that and. Uh, I got more. Actually, it was more drinking for me that got me later. How about best Michael Jackson story? Well, the the one thing I remember about him was that I was at the uh, Motown 25th anniversary. Oh, where where, moonwalk for the first time? Yeah, right? moonwalk. Yeah, I remember that. I was there actually backstage with Grace. And he was doing the moonwalk, and um, and I remember I said something to Grace like what's the big deal with this guy? How come he doesn't seem like nothing special? He's like, don't you ever say it about Michael? He's gonna be a huge star. And know, of course he was. This is before Thriller and all that. Explain the situation where Andy Warhol uh, comes up to you. <laughs> Andy, yeah, I was, uh, I just come, came to New York with Grace, 1983. And um, uh, yeah, I was at some club, uh, Club A it was called in those days, Upper East Side. I'm just walking around, Grace is doing something else, and and some little guy with white hair comes up and goes, Hi, what are you famous for? And I'm like, "Uh, Nothing, as far as I know. He says, Can I take a picture? So he took a picture with a small camera, and then he says, I'll put you in my magazine. I'm like, Oh, magazine? Okay. Grace comes up and goes, Hey, Andy, how are you? And then I realized it was Andy Warhol. Even I knew who he was. And I, I got to meet him and know him a little bit.
0: And He tried to get you to take your clothes off, didn't
1: he? Yeah, well, he, supposedly him and this guy, Chris Marcos, who was his photographer, they had a, I heard they had some kind of uh, bet um, how quickly or if they could get new guys, new models to take all their clothes off in the photo shoot. I didn't know that, but I, I never got down to, <laughs> to nothing. I didn't go that far. I think they were scared of Grace, so they, they didn't want to push it with me.
0: Correct me if I'm wrong. Sylvester Stallone was the one that really got you into bodybuilding, early on.
1: Uh, yeah. What happened was I was up for Rocky IV, and I realized, after meeting him, actually that he on the Paramount lot. Right? Yeah, Paramount lot. I met him, and he said, "You got to put on, put on, you got to put on ten pounds of muscle." So I started doing bodybuilding, and then. When I finally got the role, we did bodybuilding together.
0: And you still remember some of the choreographed uh, scenes? Yeah, a little bit. I or got up, right?
1: I got a script. I got the movie script, which is 100 and some pages, and then I got another script with all the fight, all the rounds, you know. Left, 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 right, left hook, slip, right, cross. I mean, I still remember some of it after, you know, 40 years. Explain
0: how you get paid for... Rocky, and Rambo. Yet you only have to do one of them.
1: Oh yeah, I, I was up in New York. I had an agent who got me up for a role in Rambo, uh, Rambo Two, as this Russian bad guy who ended up being played by one of Sly's bodyguards. So uh, when I went out for Rocky Four, and Sly realized that, hang on a minute, this is the same guy fighting me in Rambo Two. So I, so he, they. Paid me for that role. I think he got six grand or something. And then he kept me for, uh, for Rocky IV.
0: The last uh, movie you did with Stallone, um, I understand uh, it was important to you to confront him over a certain scene. Um, take me into that moment <laughs> and how the conversation went.
1: The film you're talking about is Creed II where I play Ivan Drago again, my character from Rocky IV. And there's a scene, which is a wonderful scene in the script, between uh, Rocky and Drago, this scene over a table. And I loved this scene in the original script. It was really great because my character finally kind of opens up about why, what happened to him after Rocky IV. What has he done for these past 40 years? And, and Sly had, started, had rewritten the scene. He'd started re- he started. was a good writer. He started rewriting it, and I, I didn't agree with some of the writing, and, and the director is this young guy, Stephen Capel, nice guy, but obviously he, he didn't want to get in the fight between me and Sly. It was, so it was he was, <laughs> he got a little scared, so he stayed out of it. It was the first time I kind of stood up to Sly because he would always been my boss and older brother, and I always you know deferred to him, but in this case I didn't. I. I stood by my guns you know and and finally after about two hours of rehearsing and arguing the uh, slice finally says something like hey can we shoot this thing now you know and then it's like i realized okay i got i got on my way pretty much um and i think it turned out to be a pretty good scene and um and, but he was he was good about it afterwards he you know he came over and gave me a tap on the back and it was, it was a nice moment because it was the first time that we'd acted kind of as equals in the scene before he was always my boss, you know.
0: You said that uh, he never viewed you as an equal and that there are unresolved issues yeah. between the two of you,
1: um, like what? He was married to um, uh, Bridget Nielsen who was a woman who uh, played my uh, wife in Rocky IV she was unhappy with what was going on with him, so she kind of used me a little bit to make him jealous. How so? First day of shooting, I'm in makeup, and he just comes up and goes, We um, talked for a second. And he's director and producer and writer of this movie, and my sparring partner. So, of course, I, I, I'm like all ears. <laughs> he goes, uh, You know, um, stop hitting on Gita. And I'm like, Excuse me? Stop hitting on Gita, and I'm like Gita—that was her nickname, Bridget. I'm like, what are you talking about? There's one—I was going out with Grace at the time, and I was faithful too. So I think it started there a little bit. We had some good times, some bad times, kind of like like family to some degree. He was—he was very harsh on me in a scene in uh, Expendables one, where he kind of yelled at me in front of the whole crew and had me had me do about 20 takes on the scene. And uh, it was like, my grandmother could do it better than that. What the f- are, you, what are you doing? You know, like basically in front of everybody. And there was press there that day too, international press, mm. to a point where I, um, we took a lunch break and I remember I was kind of in tears. Uh, I mean, I was really upset. And I called my wife at the time and I basically just told her, you know, if he says one more word, I'm going to knock him out and f- this movie, I'm out of here. I'm just going to punch him out and, f- and leave. And I think when I walked on the set, people felt a certain, it wasn't such a good vibration. And then I had a tap on the back and, and it was sly. And he was like, I'm sorry about that. Let's... Let's just do another take and let's just keep moving on. And we've had a few run-ins over the years, but he, you know, he's a, what can I say? He's a a crazy Italian, you know, uh, and I think he knows that I've always respected him and loved him. And I think that's why we're still friends.
0: Obviously, the body's taken a a beating (laughs) uh, over the years, but the, the riskiest stunts in your mind that you've ever done?
1: Riskiest stunts? Well, yeah, so when I started... In the business, there was no visual effects. There was nothing like that. You know, either you did it or your stunt man did it. If you had to d- fall out of a window, somebody had to fall out of the window. Uh, you know, somebody had to do it. It was either you, me, or my stunt double or a dummy. Yeah, you know. So um, I think the risky stuff I did, I tried a couple of high falls. One on, the, I did a movie called The Punisher, and there was a scene which was cut out later, of course, <laughs> when I did the high fall from. <sighs> 40, 50 feet maybe, 60 feet, something like that, into a bag. I hurt my back. I missed, kind of half missed the bag. A little I just did it because I, I was bored. I had nothing to do. I wanted to try it. Did that. I did one thing on Masters of the Universe uh, where in the movie I go in this He-Man, my character, goes on this flying disc, and there's a scene where I, I'm in this building and I, and I knock out the glass of a window with my sword, held to my sword, and I see the hovering disc, and I jump onto it. And as I go, I realize there are no boxes, there are no safety, they forgot that. I'm like, so I I get uh, ice cold, I realize if I miss this, I'm done, right? I'm dead. And I somehow made it to this... This platform, and typical in those days, I didn't make a big deal. I guess I got a little pissed off, but somebody should have gotten fired, but they weren't. But the jump is real, and that was kind of scary. Uh, and then I did another transfer from the motorcycle to a, a, a Jeep, I mean to a, a Jeep in Red Scorpion. Which, those are tough. Yeah, they're tough, because you're on the motorcycle sidecar and then you gotta jump to the, to the uh, truck. And in South Africa, of course, there is no safety and they use the real dynamite for explosions. In those days, there was a war between South Africa and Cuba up in Angola. So it was all real, real troops. And actually, one of the, our instructors had, you know, he got in a real shootout with uh, terrorists. And he still had dummy rounds in his gun from working with me on a Friday. And on Saturday, he's shootout with some ANC terrorists. But he's so cool, he fires, reloads the gun while that guy is trying to get his bead with an AK-47 and it kills him. Wow. Killed the guy and took his gun and showed it to us the next day. Yeah. Are you glad you did all the stunts? Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of glad I did it. I wish I would have been a little more careful with my body because I, I took a lot of beatings, you know. Uh, a lot of times I'd been out drinking and staying up all night and I'd still do a fight or do a fist fight that's, you know, three in the morning and minus 20 degrees in Montreal or something without a warm up, throwing roundhouse kicks. Not the greatest for your hips, but, you know, I did it, so. The, the, the
0: lasting impact on your body today is what?
1: You know, the biggest injury I've had is my ankle which I did in the Swedish military when I was 20 years old. I saw the picture
0: you posted of that thing.
1: Oh, oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah. I did an ankle replacement here now just, uh, you know, four or five months ago on my left ankle. Uh, but I've had that ankle all the way through the military and through, uh, you know, all the movies. And, and the, the the Army doctor told, I remember he told me, he saw the x ray he says, Lundgren, no more sports for you. You're done. And This is... 1979. So he was a bit wrong. I mean I I did last another it lasted another 45 years. What what about uh, steroids? Steroids. Yeah, I tried steroids back in the 80s, 90s. I don't know if it has anything to do with the cancer, of course it, it struck me as it could have had something to do with it. Is that something you've really thought about? I thought about it because you always think that you've made a mistake in your health health you know, healthcare while you get cancer like Maybe it's only me, but you kind of, kind of, blame yourself to some degree for it. But you know, I think maybe testosterone there's, there's some connection to testosterone therapy and HGH, you know, growth hormone therapy and cancer, in some people. Um, but I, I, you know, I was on steroids when I was younger and for a while and for how long. <sighs> On and off maybe for um, 10 years maybe, between like mid-80s, rocky, till about mid-90s, I would say. But depending on the kind of movie I made, mm-hmm. if it was very physical, I mean, maybe I'd do more, or you know, but it, it wasn't like I was doing, I mean, I heard of the real bodybuilders, how much they do, like, like testosterone, you can do 150 milligrams a week, and it's quite a bit. That's maybe what I would do. But I hear guys are doing 1,000, 1,200 <laughs> milligrams a week and anabolic steroids on top of it. I just stopped doing it because it wasn't really. I stopped doing movies where I took my shirt off in every scene.
0: Education. Um, you got uh, your college d- degree in yeah. London, you got your uh, master's degree in Australia. Yes. Then they're on. S- scholarship to MIT and of America. Uh, why was education so important to you?
1: Well, education was the way I I felt like I was somebody special when I was younger because I couldn't do sports. My dad was beating me and I, I felt insecure, but I realized I was pretty smart. Like I could memorize stuff, I could remember things, I could do logical deductions very easily. I was good at math, I was good at physics and chemistry, and. And then I think on another level, I tried to prove to my dad that I was his son, that I was as smart as he was, and that his favorite school in the whole world was MIT. He always talked about MIT this and MIT that. So I thought, okay, I'm going to try to get a scholarship to MIT. So I got a scholarship to Australia, got another one to America, another one to America, and then finally I got the Fulbright scholarship. And to get the Fulbright scholarship, I had to graduate as number one in my class. I remember I was studying like crazy and, and I was also fighting at the same time. I was fighting in the Australian Open in full contact karate and I, I got sick from, the, from doing it. But I, I, I knew that it wasn't for me, uh, it, was too, it wasn't too, it was emotional enough, it wasn't interesting enough for me. I, I couldn't be a chemical engineer for the rest of my life. I, I knew that but I, I was waiting for a way out and then I met Grace, you know, and Sly.
0: You said your dad was supportive when? You you told him that that you were going to leave. MIT.
1: He he was supportive. I think initially the first way he found out was that he thought I was studying at, at MIT because I was up there for a few weeks. But then one day after work he was opening the evening papers and at home in Sweden with his feet up, and there is a picture of Grace Jones and this other bare-chested character in leather pants at Studio 54. (laughs) (laughs) it was his son, the chemical engineering student. And then I got a phone call and then he was wondering what the hell happened, what's going on. And then I had to tell him, you know, gave up the scholarship and, (laughs) <laughs> I was starting to be an actor in New York, and then, then I think it took him a while to figure that one out. To, to what extent was he proud of your accomplishments? I think he was very proud of the MIT thing, and he was proud of the uh, karate, the British Open champion and all that. He was very proud of that. And later, when I um, became a movie star, and uh, he was doing. He was getting some surgery in London, and he was funny. Though I went to see him at the hotel, and, and I, I know I'd been wearing a blazer shirt and some tie I bought in London. And he did say, "Yeah, you look really good." But he said you wore the wrong tie because with that blazer, you should wear a school tie like the ones you know, the ones they wear in England, the ones with the stripes on. So he uh, just couldn't let it go. I read
0: somewhere you said from like uh, 97 to 07, your earnings dropped like 90%. Yeah. How did you handle
1: th- 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 that? My fi- well, I was in America until 1997, 1998. I worked quite well and I kind of had a saved income, I uh, save, savings, and, and I moved to Spain, bought a big house in Marbella, I bought an apartment in Sweden, I had an apartment in Manhattan. Uh, and then I moved to Spain and, you know, being away from Hollywood, you kind of lose touch with everything. So my earnings, instead of getting 100, I got 10 per movie. So
0: Meanwhile, the overhead staying the, the same. The overhead
1: stayed the same and got more expensive because the more I cheated on my wife, the more she wanted to spend my money. It's a classic. So, uh, you know, she kind of, she didn't want to come with me on locations or anything. So she kind of knew that I had affairs. But I don't think she cared as long as I paid the bills and bought her a new Ferrari or whatever it was. And um, so it was that kind of relationship, you know. I mean, it wasn't like we were arguing. She was a very nice woman. I mean, they just think that the overhead was huge, you know. Credit card bills every week, maybe every month for like maybe 60 grand. That was her, just her credit card, you know. So, you know, it all adds up, right, because that's after tax.
0: How tight did money get?
1: It got pretty tight. and What happened was I had to be gone a lot to work all the time, so my kids only saw me on vacations and stuff. And
0: that's because if you weren't gone all the time for doing the work, but I mean, basically, you aren't going to be able to keep up with no, the, the no, bills.
1: No, and I, and I finally said, you know, i got to move back to L.A. we got to sell the house here and try to cash in on the house and all of that. But then the financial crisis hit, the end of uh, 2010 or something like that. And we got divorced and I moved back to L.A. It started with uh, Expendables, the first one, and that kind of got me back into the big screen. But it took me uh, seven, eight years to get out of the hole really because you know the divorce and then those payments and then trying to sell the house in spain and i had to rebuild that and then i sold the place in sweden and it just took me a while now shoulda coulda would have but i if i would have stayed here of course you know would have been much easier i mean the assets would have been here it wouldn't have been in spain and all that but my kids had an interesting upbringing there and you know I, i love spain i have a lot of friends there Uh, But I had to come back here. I was surprised to hear you say this, that um,
0: you were never 100% committed to your career. No. Um,
1: How so? That's an interesting question. It has something to do with that uh, trauma and the escape behavior, self-sabotaging. I mean, I was working hard, I was doing the movies, but I was always Either I'd go back to Spain and lose touch with it, or I would go out drinking and kind of screw up some of my preparation as an actor, or I wasn't really connected emotionally because of the trauma, so I couldn't really deliver what I wanted to deliver as an actor. So with those things against me, it's hard to fully commit. And I've, I chose to kind of commit You know, not fully, but like 80% instead of, now I feel more committed. Like now, if I direct a movie, I want everything to be perfect. I mean, I'll I'll sit up all night to finish stuff, but I wouldn't, I wasn't like that back then.
0: After our sit down interview, we went over to the iconic Gold's Gym in Venice Beach to meet up with Dolph's
2: longtime friend, Arnold Schwarzenegger. All right, give me two more, come on now. You can do it, one more. And yeah. hold it, and hold it. No, 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 we're holding it down there, remember the old days? Yes. We always held it on the last rep. <laughs> I know, when you get older, uh. things are not as easy anymore. <laughs>
0: yes. You guys remember uh, when you first met on the set of Yeah, comments?
2: so let me tell you something, because he would never say this. I remember uh, Grace Jones asked me, he says, do you mind do you? have a friend here visiting and he would like to work out in the morning, can you, can you work out? And I said, absolutely, no problem. So he came in, we worked out, and we saw him kicking and boxing and hitting the bags and the dead headbutts and the knee thing and the this and the that and all this. So after like a month of doing that, I said to him, I said, you're unbelievable, Dov. this is really fantastic. And he says, can I try something? I said, try what? He says, hold on a second. He went and got this can. With put it on top of my head. Wait a second. He said, what is this about? And then, whap! He kicks the can off my head. And never touched my head. (laughs) Do you remember that? Never touched my head. First of all, he would never even say that. I don't know. Because he's one of those guys, you know, what happens in the gym stays in the gym type of thing. But I was so impressed, we all were kind of saying, you got to go in the movies. You got to get in the movies, this has to be on the screen. I mean, there's no one that can do kicks like that. This is like really wild. And he was also doing serious weights. So I mean, this is how we met. And then when I I was so happy, when Sly, I think, was the first one to kind of rediscovered you for the movies, he tried it for Rocky, and the rest is history. Uh, The man became a star, one of the (laughs) 80s stars. Right? that propelled the action movies all to right. the front and all this stuff. I mean, this was the man. So I don't know if you remember this, but uh,
0: you were training for Rocky Four. I think you're, uh, because you were training, you're staying in the guest house at Grace's. Yeah. Uh, parties going on and you get a knock on the door.
1: Yeah, I was trying to catch some sleep because I had train with Sly and Grace had a big party. And I had a knock on the door and like, I'm trying to sleep. And I heard this voice, it's your trainer. I'm here to check your abs. I opened the door. This man was there with a big cigar and a big smile. Charming as usual. Smoked him out of the room.
0: (laughs) I smoked him
2: out of his room, exactly. The role this place has played in both of your lives would be what? Well, he's a creation of the gym. I'm a creation of the gym. But not only physically, because that's the obvious, but also psychologically. This is the best place to really set your mind straight because you can come here, and we talked about this many times, the 200 pounds that you pull down is for a poor guy just as heavy as it's for a rich guy. So here you become equal. It doesn't matter if you're a woman or if you're a man, if you're black or you're white, no matter what your religion, the 200 pounds is 200 pounds. And that's what's great about this place. And it's also a community. We are like you know camarades. We all kind of help each other. I have sometimes problems. If it's professional or personal, then those guys are there to support me. Then he has a problem and goes down and feels down and out, then we are there to help him. If it's life and dumb him. We all help each other. So this is what it's a community, this whole thing. You remember what the early days were like here?
1: Uh, yeah, it was it was a little more severe, you know, because there weren't a lot of you know, sort of normal people. It was mostly heavy,
2: hard hardcore bodybuilders that came here. I don't think we should give him any more information. <laughs> you know, we gave him 5% of what we know, and we thought he now can conquer the world. so You I'm got a can? Shouldn't go any further.
1: Let's <laughs> put a <laughs> can on
0: this set. Thanks for listening to my interview with Dolph Lundgren. For more from our chat, including me losing a boxing match on the beach, go to youtube.com Graham Bensinger. And as always, please rate, review, and subscribe goes a long way in helping us grow this podcast. Thanks again for listening.